Welcome back to the Fourth World Sepsis Congress. This is Session 9, Biomarkers and Antimicrobial Stewardship, the Synergies to Diagnose Sepsis and to Prevent AMR. Before we get started, we'd like to especially thank Thermo Fisher for sponsoring this session. Thermo Fisher Scientific is the world leader in serving science. Their mission is to enable their customers to make the world healthier, cleaner, and safer. Now, let me hand it over to Louise Thwaites to get us going. Louise? Hello. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome to this session of the World Sepsis Congress. I'm Louise Thwaites, and I am a researcher based at the Oxford University Clinical Research Unit in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. I'm also a member of the Global Sepsis Alliance and the Asia-Pacific Sepsis Alliance. Um, I've been really enjoying the, the Congress so far, and uh, I'm, I'm really excited to bring this session to you. Yesterday, there was quite a lot of talk about policy, about not becoming siloed in the way we approach sepsis. And I know in the Asia-Pacific region, we've been working on ways to perhaps link with other areas, for example, programs on antimicrobial resistance. So I think this session is really relevant and hopefully will, will provide us with some ideas going forwards as well as a lot of, of really valuable knowledge about sepsis and antimicrobial resistance. So we've got a fantastic lot of speakers who are going to come forward and talk today. Um, I'd like to thank just at the beginning of this session, our exclusive sponsor for this session, which is Thermo Fisher. And also remind you, if, if you've already participated or let you know if you haven't so far about the chat and comments function. Um, we'd really love you to, to put questions or comments. The idea is that if you if you want a question, we'll find it most easily if it goes in the in the question section. But but please feel free to add comments as well. We want to keep this interactive as possible. So without further ado, we're going to head to our first speaker um, and where better place to start um, than looking at the key drivers of antimicrobial resistance. And our speaker is Silvia Bellatonio uh, from the World Health Organization. Uh, she leads the antimicrobial division there, but also the, leads the global clinical platform for COVID-19. So over to you, Sylvia. Thank you very much, Luis, for the kind introduction. It's really a great pleasure for me to be here with you and uh, and go over in the next 10 minutes or so on the uh, you know key drivers of antimicrobial resistance. My name is Silvia Bertagnolio, and I, I work in WHO in Geneva uh, in the antimicrobial resistance division. I'm an infectious disease physician as a background. And I've been working for many years in the in the WHO on leading the HIV drug resistance program, and then later on on the on the COVID pandemic, uh, you know, leading the the global clinical platform. Um, and uh, I want to really start by highlighting the uh, the incredible impact that antimicrobial resistance actually played 
and the burden uh, across the globe. We know that from the Gram studies that uh, uh, in just in 2019, 1.3 million deaths were attributable to bacterial EMR uh, in across the globe. Um, we know from the Gram studies again that Sub-Saharan Africa is the place with the highest death rate compared to other places in the world, and that uh, infections. Uh, originating from the low respiratory tract infections, the BSI and the intra-abdominal infections are responsible and accounting for almost 80% of the AMR-related death, which is very significant. Uh, again, according to the Gram uh, estimate, six pathogens are responsible for 80% of the AMR-related death, and these are E. coli, are uh, Staph aureus, Klebsiella, Streptopneumonia, Acinetobacter baumani, and Pseudomonas aeruginosas. Now, I want to um, also highlight that those estimates needs to be interpreted with caution, uh, given the uh, that the underlying uh, poor quality of data originated from lymphadenic settings. We know that surveillance is poor in those settings. Data are not represent nationally representative, and therefore. This data needs to be uh, taken into account. The interpretation of this data need, needs to take into account this aspect. Now, the um, uh, you know sepsis and uh, and uh, um, EMR are intrinsically linked in a way because we know that EMR limits the effectiveness of antibiotic um, of antibiotics that are treating bacterial infection causing. Uh, you know, underlying the sepsis. And uh, we know that antibiotic timing in the context of sepsis is extremely uh, important and needs to be in, in antimicrobial, needs to be started as soon as possible. So tackling AMR will have a contribution in reducing morbidity and mortality associated with sepsis episode. Uh, we know that AMR uh, is, uh, uh, is a natural phenomenon and is a Darwinian phenomenon, is an, is an evolution of species in response uh, of the uh, selective pressure that is exerted by um, antibiotics, antibiotics that are utilized in the, in, the, in the human health sector at the community level, in the hospital setting, uh, antimicrobial that are utilized in veterinary medicine, in the animal health as a, for treating infection, but unfortunately also as an IPC intervention in those settings, as well as a growth promoter for food producing animals. Uh, agriculture, uh, because of uh, some malpractices, also uh, can result in environmental, in, you know, in uh, contaminated food, then then uh, was also, uh, you know, and, and, and resistance then spread across the three different sectors. So once resistance emerged as a result of genetic uh, mutation uh, uh, in the gene, including the in the in the pathogens you know, chromosomes, or as a uh, exchange of genetic material coming from outside, then resistance is spread onwards and spreading onwards through a, basically in a, a quick health system. So really, tackling tackling antimicrobial resistance requires multifaceted and uh, actions across the different sectors. Now, the, um, Alison Holmes has done a very nice overview of drivers that are impacting AMR either directly or indirectly. And these are uh, overuse and misuse of antimicro anti antimicrobials, poor access to diagnostic vaccine and quality medicine, poor infection prevention and control, uh, unsafe water, sanitation and hygiene, 
uh, lack of new antibiotics in the pipeline, agricultural practices, globalization and trade, and poor public awareness. Now, those uh, drivers have a different uh, relative uh, contribution uh, to, to resistance. And, uh, and uh, on the right-hand side, you can see this displayed in the wide uh, axis from low to moderate to high as a gradient. And also, uh, Holmes and colleagues look at the, through the great method, assess the quality of the evidence, uh, assessing whether those factors are contributing to antimicrobial resistance. Uh, each driver, each circle, uh, the diameter of each circle represents the impact of that driver uh, at the population level. And so you can see that uh, there are some drivers that have a high impact and there is high quality of evidence and other drivers that have a lower impact and for which the quality of the evidence is less certain. And clearly overuse and misuse of antimicrobials is, um, is a driver and uh, uh, across uh, and, and it has a very strong evidence around that. Um, and the uh, overuse and misuse of antimicrobials um, is, is clear around the world. About uh, It's estimated that 50% of antibiotics are prescribed unnecessarily. And this has became really evident during the COVID pandemic. The WHO Global Clinical Platform collects individual level clinical data from over 1,000 cases across 64 countries uh, of people hospitalized for covid between 2020 and 2022. And what we observe is that almost 80% of people hospitalized with COVID receive antibiotics. And this frequency did not decrease, unfortunately, over time. So from 2020 to 2022, we did not observe significant reduction. Antibiotics were provided to uh, patients hospitalized regardless of their illness, severity of illness at admission, mild patient or severe patient in both cases, Patients receive antibiotics without particular significant difference among the two groups. Uh, antibiotics were wide, you know, used widely across, across the board, but uh, more extensively in some geographical regions, for example, the Afro region where 96% of patients hospitalized receive antibiotics, and a bit lower in the West Pacific region where only 60% of patients receive antibiotics. Most of the antibiotics were prescribed in the first 24 hour of hospital admission, highlighting that really empirical therapy was the driver of the, of the use of these drugs. And countries with the highest proportion of patients with mild or moderate disease admitted to the hospital were uh, in the African context, namely Burkina Faso, DRC, Guinea, Malawi, Nigeria, South Africa, followed by uh, Saudi Arabia and Spain. Now, clearly, another important, you know, indirect driver in a way of antimicrobial resistance transmission is the vaccination. We know that vaccination can reduce uh, the incidence of infections, uh, susceptible infection, and infection caused by resistance pathogens. Can decrease the number of uh, the incidence of secondary infection. Can decrease the number of uh, of the, the the use of an unnecessary antibiotic use and also reduce infection among people, even those that are not vaccinated through the herd immunity. Now, in uh, there's been uh, data suggesting that implementation of the pneumococcal vaccine uh, in the US in 2020, uh, in 2010, uh, has been associated with a drastic reduction in the antibiotic resistance cases 
uh, afterwards across all different, um, across the four different drug classes, macrolides, cephalosporin, tetracycline, and penicillin. So important intervention if we want to reduce AMR. Uh, vaccination across in, in pneumococcal, uh, for pneumococcal and rotavirus also been estimated to prevent a significant number of antibiotic treated episodes, 35 million episodes, the two vaccines combined in low middle income countries, if we for, you know if we target you know, children. Um, and it had it's been estimated that by expanding the use of, uh, of vaccine uh, and, uh, using universal health coverage, so all, all, uh, all the people that are in need receive a vaccination for pneum and, and rotavirus, then the, we could we could avert additional 40 million antibiotic treated episodes. So again, significant impact on that. Now, unfortunately, the number of vaccines that are in the in the clinical development um, for uh, important uh, pathogens that are for, for sepsis and and, and uh, uh, hospital acquired infections are limited or absent. There are no candidates in clinical development for uh, um, acinetobacter, for pseudomonas, for enterobacter, for enterococcus patients, for example, which of course limit uh, extensively um, our ability at this point in time to use those tools to limit the transmission of resistance infection. Another important driver that is indirectly associated with uh, uh, emergence and, and, and actually more spread of antimicrobial resistance is the lack of appropriate diagnostics and the poor capacity, particularly low middle income countries to diagnose bacterial infection. In this nice overview and assessment uh, conducted by the African Society for Laboratory Medicine in 14 uh, African countries that assessed to over 200 uh, laboratories, found that only 1.3% of those labs perform bacteriological uh, bacteriology testing. Uh, and even less perform susceptibility testing. So clearly, this is a major gap that needs to be addressed if we uh, want to diagnose and therefore uh, better treat uh, bacterial infection and particularly those with and identify those with resistance pathogens. Um, another critical element that intervention that is associated with the reduction in uh, AMR infection is the infection prevention and control. We know that this intervention in association with uh, hand hygiene and in association with antibiotic stewardship program um, is uh, uh, estimated to reduce a significant number of AMR infection, uh, avoid a significant number of death, reduce health burden at the facility level and reduce, um, you know, and save and save and save uh, money uh, ultimately at the facility level as well at the global at the national level. However, despite we know that IPC works and uh, and should be implemented, and we knew uh, that IPC works since you know 8040 since Pasteur uh, concept of asepsis, then yet we have still uh, lagging behind uh, with implementation of IPC. Uh, in a in, in service that WHO and uh, other UN agencies conduct uh, annually to assess the capacity and the progress made by countries in implementing uh, element of the National Action Plan on AMR, um, shows that uh, a IPC is uh, implemented 
uh, in terms of nationwide implementation, only in 34% of the 162 countries that have uh, uh, provided this information. So, and over the four, last four years, we haven't seen progress in, in terms of IPC implementation in countries at the global level. So this is really a, a, a concern and, uh, and it's particularly um, intriguing uh, that this is not, uh, the EIPC is not improved uh, given the attention that has received uh, this intervention during the COVID time. Now, another important driver um, of antimicrobial resistance, emergence and spread is the uh, lack of or poor wash water and sanitation and hygiene. Uh, we know that three quarters of the population in low middle income countries um, in, do not have access to facility with soap and water. We know that uh, very, uh, you know, one, one out of five facilities do not have sanitation services and this impact about 1.5 billion individuals all around the globe. Um, Two billion people use a drinking water source which is contaminated with feces. So this has significant impact, of course. And the impact um, on the MR emergence and transmission um, is, uh, of course, uh, significant. So pathogens are spread via the water, via sludge and manure. Uh, not only pathogens that are causing diseases, but also there is a silent uh, transmission of pathogens that are not too too much pathogenic, but then when they meet and host that is vulnerable, such as malnourished children or people living with HIV with comorbidities, then of course they are, uh, you know, creating, um, you know, negative consequence and negative outcome on those patients and, and infection. Um, indeed, uh, they, we know that uh, animals such poultry, for example, can partially, only partially uh, kind of digest and metabolize the uh, antibiotics and therefore they can be excreted with uh, virtually unchanged as the parent compound. And therefore, uh, when uh, antibiotics uh, or fecal are released into the environment due to poor sanitation and poor hygiene, these can favor really the emergence uh, of resistance and the transfer of, of new uh, resistant genes. And lastly, uh, industry that and, and that is manufacturing uh, antibiotics and can release compound uh, or and metabolites in the wastewater at very high concentration. And uh, some evidence suggests that in some instances, those concentration is higher than the concentration reaching the blood in patients when they are treated with antibiotics. So of course, this is exceptional situation, but that may have an important role. Although again, evidence of the association between uh, polluted waste, uh, wastewaters and uh, human resistance to human health is less, is less strong. Now, there is of course important uh, implication in the uh, uh, malpractice in agriculture, use of antibiotics is animals and, uh, and pollution contributing to AMR. This is a nice study from Allel and colleagues uh, published in 2023, uh, is, which is an ecological country level studies and um, assessing the antimicrobial consumption in humans and identifying that indeed uh, this has impact not only in uh, increased level of AMR in humans, but also among animals and among food producing animals and vice versa use of antimicrobials in food producing animals is associated with an increase of EMR among humans 
among animals, sorry, but also among humans. So it's a bi biodirectional kind of uh, um, um, uh, kind of transmission of, of of EMR across the two sectors, and this transmission is augmented and favored by uh, changing climate. So high, higher, higher temperature uh, favor that transmission GDP index, uh, overcrowding, poverty, uh, unsafe water and sanitation and hygiene uh, are all kind of um, you know, drivers and favor you know, and enabler of the transmission of AMR. Uh, in, in the agriculture side, the use of uh, metals in agriculture can select for resistance and also the use of um, fertilizers that are commonly used in agriculture may create change the composition of the soil, creating a, a higher concentration of antibiotic genes in that in that settings. Uh, uh, the use of the traveling and global trade and uh, uh, movement of people around the globe is also has been, although the evidence here is less, you know, less strong, has been associated with an increased uh, transmission and spread. Uh, of course, of, of carbapenem resistance mechanism across the globe. We have seen that travelers that move from high-income countries to low-income settings um, come back at home with the uh, increased rate of, uh, of gut colonization uh, with the MR pathogens, in particular ABL, SBL positive enterobacterial. So this can clearly play a role uh, in, uh, in the transmission of AMR, onwards transmission of AMR. And despite the fact that we know that antimicrobial, we need to be more aware, public needs to be more aware, specific sectors in the uh, in the U in the in the in the categories of individuals needs to be more aware. Yet the progress that countries have made in the implementation of campaigns, awareness campaign on AMR, uh, have been um, insignificant and, and poor. And so this is, uh, of course, an element of concern. Uh, now, clearly, we need to do a better job in uh, not only in developing national action plan, and for that we have been we have been quite good. So the global action plan on, the, on WHO has been developed in 2015, and as of today, 170 countries around the globe have developed their national action plan. Now, the problem is the implementation, the financing, uh, and the monitoring of the National Action Plan. And here the statistics are quite reassuring, and only 24% of the countries have actually costed, financed, and implemented and monitored the National Action Plan. And this brings really to my conclusion uh, and that you know, EMR is a very complex uh, societal phenomenon um, and is driven by many interlinked factors. Um, so reducing antibiotic in animal, in human, in agriculture is clearly needed, but it's not uh, enough. We need to do more uh, because the onwards transmission of AMR, uh, either strain and genes, is the kind of the most important contributing factor. And is really, uh, at the end of the day, favored by the weak health system, which is the hardest part to kind of fix uh, at, at the country level. Uh, we know that we know uh, we have learned a lot, but there are still significant knowledge gaps on EMR determinants and drivers that remains to be assessed. And so uh, WHO is uh, releasing in 2023 a global EMR priority research agenda in the human health sector, as well as a, a research agenda in the in the One Health. And the research agenda, these two research agenda, which are complementary, 
will are, are respected to catalyze the attention of researchers, the attention of funders on key priority research question that one number one have the greatest public health impact and number two fill the most significant knowledge gaps that we have uh, as of today. And with that, I thank you very much for your attention. Happy to answer any question now or later uh, on by email. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was, that was an amazing overview and also just really highlighting the scale of the problem and the, the challenges we have going forward. Uh, I don't have time to read it, read them all, but there are a huge number of comments there in, in the chat really echoing echoing the fact that this needs to be a multifactorial or multidisciplinary approach. It needs to be done across governments at many levels. But also people are highlighting that the day-to-day -day problems they have uh, in deciding what antibiotic to use for a patient. And are, are there any guidance around um, what to do and and going forwards? Um, so I, I'm, I'm just trying to pull out what, what, what I should ask. But I, th I think I'm going to ask, ask you a very... A difficult, probably a very difficult answer to answer question, but a simple question is: it is very complex. Um, and what do you think is the single thing that that um, most healthcare workers? Because I think the majority of our audience here are healthcare workers today. What can they do going forwards? Thank, thank you, Anna. And indeed, it is a very difficult question, but it, unfortunately, there is not one single answer because, as I highlighted, it's really. Uh, so it's a complex, it's a complex phenomenon. So each of us has to do our own part. So if we are a clinician, we need to ensure that there is a proper, a proper diagnosis and a proper treatment. I've been in, in many countries, uh, particularly low middle income countries where uh, there is not trust in the use of diagnostic, if diagnostic are available and test is the return to the physician. The physician is not acting upon the test, is not de-escalating the antibiotic, is not changing antibiotics based on the, on the antibiogram. And why that? Because there is a lack of trust on the test in most settings. Uh, there is no, um, and this turned with like lower demand. So the physician in many settings don't even ask the test and then just provide broad spectrum antibiotic just to be on the safe side. So it's a clear, complex uh, phenomenon, but uh, but require kind of action across across the various the various sectors. Okay, thank you. And there is there is one very specific question. Um, just just to finish with, um, which is uh, asking about the list of essential medicines uh, WHO has, um, and and potentially including. Um, antibiotics, which are useful for carbapenem-resistant gram-negative bacteria, increasing the li list of those essential medicines. And, and what is your view on that? I don't know. So yes, so the, as you know, the essential, the essential, you know, medicine list is an important uh, repository of uh, of an, you know list of antibiotics that can be utilized and purchased and procured by countries. Uh, the list is reviewed uh, regularly and actually in the coming months there will be a new revision of the essential medicine list to assess what are the antibiotics that needs to be kind of included in the list, uh, particularly looking at the reserve antibiotic. Uh, as you know that there is the watch access watch and reserve categories of antibiotics. And so in this particular meeting there will be an assessment, a critical assessment of the reserve antibiotic. To what extent we need to increase access, but also limiting the excess of antibiotics that are not needed. Right. 
Thank you so much. And thank you again for that really, really fantastic talk. So we'll now move on to our next speaker. Um, and I think this is going to transition really well. We've talked about the problems, the challenges, and our next speaker probably needs very little introduction. Ron Daniels from Birmingham here in the UK. And he's going to be talking about really potential barriers to antimicrobial stewardship. Um, Ron is the executive director of the UK Sepsis Trust, um, uh, executive board member of the Global Sepsis Alliance, and he's recently been involved in this huge program of work to ensure appropriate antibiotics in patients in the UK. So I'm going to hand over to Ron now to tell us more about this. Thank you so much, Louise. Uh, nice to see you and um, uh, warm welcome to everybody listening from all over the world. So my background as I move to share my screen is uh, I'm an intensive care doctor in Birmingham. So I'm approaching this probably from a less scientific approach than some speakers, but really from a sort of pragmatic ear on the ground, to use an English expression, uh, approach around the synergies and challenges between managing sepsis well and reducing the propagation of AMR. So I just want to remind people about the scale of these problems. And I make no apology that this will be probably the 20th time you've seen these slides if you've attended the whole of this Congress. And, and obviously COVID-19 thus far at the time of recording has now affected and caused around 6.8 million deaths around the world. And as an intensive care clinician, no one needs to tell me how horrific COVID-19, um, I'm going to say was, certainly from a UK perspective. Um, sepsis every year claims 11 million lives, contrasting with 6.8 million lives lost to COVID-19 in three and a quarter years. And I think that just gives us some interesting context. We cannot think about sepsis without thinking about antimicrobial resistance. But the first point I want to make is it would be naive to think that driving sepsis improvement work is the primary driver of increasing antimicrobial resistance in the human population. Because people have infections that are not sepsis and they still receive antimicrobials. Now we know that in high income countries and obviously in other countries, diarrheal disease and malaria will come to the fore as big drivers of infection, but in high income countries, we see these four sources of infection as primary drivers. Pneumonia, urinary tract infection, intra-abdominal, skin and soft tissue, bone and joint account for about 95% of episodes of sepsis in such countries. And it's a huge burden on healthcare systems. These are English data. So we looked at our hospital episode statistics codes and we chose the most common codes coding from one of those uh, sources of infection. And as you can see there, in England alone, this was 1.7 million episodes of hospital care were either caused by or complicated by infection in one of those spaces. So I think the first point I want to make is it's not a conflict or opportunity for synergy between sepsis and AMR, it's our desire to reduce and mitigate harm from infection, including severe infection that is not yet sepsis, in a very large population that drives this. And um, the previous speaker, Dr. Bortagnoli, um, highlighted that, of course, antimicrobial consumption is also in the food chain, it's also in intensive farming, and this 
huge number in England alone doesn't even account for the myriad antibiotics prescribed outside hospital. So it's understandable that we have drivers towards AMR. But what about what I'm supposed to be talking about, which is the barriers? Well, I think the first barrier to this linkage and the opportunities for synergy between prioritizing better sepsis care and a responsible start time as microbial stewardship is the professional disquiet. Now, one of our former health ministers in the UK, international listeners might be well aware that we've had several health ministers over recent years, but one of the former health ministers tweeted something fairly foolish, suggesting that every death from sepsis is preventable, which of course is not true. And that prompted colleagues and friends to write this letter to The Lancet in late 2019. And they highlighted that since we had incentivized better sepsis care in the UK, we had seen a doubling of antibiotic consumption in emergency departments. And obviously, and quite rightly, that caused significant alarm. Now, the driver for that increased use in emergency departments was this. Now, we don't need to go into the mechanism of a sequin, we've only got 10 minutes, but it's a commissioning incentive in use in England, which encourages hospitals to do the right thing according to NHS England. And it ran for three years, and in three short years, we saw a, a rise from 32% of patients getting their antibiotics within one hour to 80% of patients. So significant process improvements, and although this is not cause and effect because the methodologies differed and they weren't tied to the process, sequential studies reporting outcome seemed to suggest that mortality reduced from about 30% to about 20% during that time period. Data around antibiotic consumption, because we were interested in the letter to the Lancet, was alarming when you looked only at emergency departments. These are from the Royal Pharmaceutical Society in the UK, and it showed that since 2014, which predated any incentivization, but we'll let the authors off, there was a doubling of antibiotic consumption in emergency departments. But I'd suggest that what we're really interested in is total hospital consumption. Can we, um, at the same time, prioritize sepsis as well as maintain a responsible stance on antimicrobial consumption in hospitals? And I think the right-hand column of the table would suggest that actually that is entirely possible. During the same time period, we saw an increase in 1%, which is worse than 0%, but is still not a doubling of antibiotic consumption in hospital. So I'd suggest what these data show is that it's possible to incentivize better sepsis care. And if it's done properly without the adverse consequence of increasing total hospital antibiotic use. And we've seen similar from a small number of other countries. One of the, the best reports on this that I see comes out of Ireland, and it showed that there were significant increases in the rate of recognition of sepsis between 2017 and 2016, significant improvements in outcomes and process, but antimicrobial consumption actually reduced fractionally during that time period. So again, supportive data that you can incentivize better sepsis care, you can improve process without the adverse consequence of driving increased antimicrobial consumption. Now, New York State has achieved incredibly similar process improvements to those in the UK. Um, unfortunately, they don't carry the granularity of data around antibiotic use, but surrogates such as New York State's uh, C. difficile rates, their MRSA rates, their um, frequency of carbapenase-producing pr organisms is no different to that in other states. So it's very soft surrogate data. 
I just want to move on to, to a point that was touched on again by the previous speaker around point of care diagnostics before I wrap up. Now, obviously, we all know that we have come and some countries are still going through an horrific pandemic. We know that very few people, certainly in high income countries, developed bacterial co-infection. Now, our NICE in the UK estimated that it could be as low as 0.1% of people hospitalized with COVID had bacterial co-infection. I think that's a little bit low. I think it was probably higher than that. But what happened? We were told to look for bacterial infection and treat it if we thought it was present. But this um, systematic review conducted by some of our colleagues in the Global Sex Alliance and the parties identified that most people were given antimicrobials. You can see there that half of studies, every patient got antibiotics, whereas nearly 90% of studies, more than half of patients. Now, why is this? Why is there a disconnect between what we know, these were European studies, what we know that very few patients have bacterial co-infection and the practice? And I would argue that it's around our failure to adequately integrate point of care technologies into clinical systems. The science is evolving far in excess of the rate at which we can integrate this technology into clinical systems. And there's a lot we need to do in the space of sepsis, AMR and infection prevention, again, as the previous speaker showed. But I think one rapid win, particularly for higher income countries, is to grow up with respect to point of care diagnostics. They should not be in a laboratory. They should be in the hands of the prescribing clinician because that's where they're going to have impact. Another example I'll give, because I know we have got three minutes remaining, is Legionella. Now, I work in one of the three biggest hospital systems in a rich country like the UK. It takes me three days to get a Legionella antigen back from the laboratory meaning that my patients who are admitted with pneumonia are often given a macrolide antibiotic as well as a beta-lactam just in case they've got Legionella. And we very rarely see Legionella. What if we had a simple lateral flow test, which do exist in my clinical setting? If the patient didn't look like they had Legionnaire's disease, if their history wasn't consistent with it, with it and the lateral flow test was negative, surely I should be empowered to withhold that second antimicrobial. But at present, I'm not. So imagine if we could get this right with the integration of diagnostics being a small part of this. This is what we're about with the Infection Management Coalition. This is something that's been developed in the UK. It's influencing policy in the UK, but it's equally applicable to any country with associated um, uh, iteration. It's supported by industry, by industry regulators and by advocacy stakeholders. And the top level message to governments is that we need to stop speaking in silos. We need to stop talking separately about antimicrobial resistance, outbreak surveillance, pandemic preparedness, antimicrobial stewardship and rapid treatment of time critical infections, because they're all in the business of stopping people dying from infection or untreatable infection. We need to start talking about infections management. I'm going to just highlight just a couple of the recommendations that we need granular patient level data around sepsis. At the moment, we have a very broad brush, single use academic definition, which applies the same thresholds to people irrespective of comorbidity and age. We need data input by health professionals. These need to be laboratory data, vital signs data, recovery data. 
We need to incentivize our pharmaceutical industry to develop antimicrobial pipelines through a better remuneration model. And many will be aware that NICE are piloting a different remuneration model for certain antimicrobials in the UK. I've mentioned about the better integration of point of care diagnostics. And then just to finish this part, we need to um, uh, look to alternative international mechanisms to get this antimicrobial pipeline moving. But I'm just going to finish with baby penguins. We need our baby penguin because antimicrobial resistance right now does not have a face. Dame Sally Davies has achieved more than anyone on this planet, probably, about raising government's awareness of antimicrobial resistance. But my children don't know anything about it because we don't have our fluffy penguin. My children know what they can do to reduce plastics in the ocean. We need to give antimicrobial resistance and harm from untreatable infection the face. That face, I would argue, is people dying of sepsis because their antimicrobials aren't working. And when we get that bit right, we can really start to move forward, engaging the public, policymakers, and the broader media. So in the interest of time, we'll stop there. Very, very happy to take any questions. By the way, thousands of lives, that's in a country with a population the size of the UK. Globally, I think there's opportunity to save around a million more lives every year. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ron. That was an amazing talk. And and actually, I think you, you maybe you've been looking in the question box because because the first question ties in just perfectly with with how you ended there. Um, the, the, the question is, is the 11 million figure of deaths caused by sepsis, including the 6 million figure of COVID deaths or not? Yeah, no. So, so these were data that predated COVID um, or at least predated our knowledge of COVID. I think we, we need to qualify those data because the estimates have actually gone up again. So the estimates uh, at last count were 13 million deaths a year. They do include a majority of deaths from diarrheal disease in low to middle income countries. And I think most health professionals would uh, question that understanding that actually dehydration and malnutrition can be the mode of death rather than sepsis in those cases. So I think Whichever way we cut it, the quantum is huge. Sepsis is poorly measured. There are no national or international registries around it. The quantum is big, but we're not certain 11 million is exactly the right number. Thanks very much. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really important. And and I think also it's incredible to see how you've managed to, to work with policymakers so well, particularly in the UK. Um, do you have any tips for people around the world or or things perhaps you might want to share about what what the how you managed to approach that and, and how how you had such a successful outcome really with this program of work? So I, I, I think at a top level, there's really two important things to say. Firstly, it needs to be context sensitive. This needs to be what can be done in my country? How do we approach this? How is our clinical system set up? You know, even in very similar countries like Germany and the UK, um, the way budgets flow through healthcare are totally different. And the needs in Germany would be different to the needs in the UK in terms of, for example, testing point of care diagnostics. And of course, low and middle income countries will have different needs again. The second top level point is this absolutely has to be collaborative. 
This has to be multi-stakeholder initiatives. Um, uh, I described advocacy organizations, industry regulators, industry stakeholders, professional societies, all coming together with a common purpose. Now, the Global Sepsis Alliance is supportive of the Infection Management Coalition, and I think through our networks and reach, if there were individuals in countries looking to activate a similar plan within their own countries, then certainly we would work with them to help to do that. Great. Thank you so much, Ron. That's that's an amazing talk. And and I'm sure people will be contacting you or, or the regional sepsis alliances beyond, beyond that. So thank you very much. So thank you very much. We'll, we'll move on to our next speaker now. Uh, we've just mentioned how difficult it can be to decide whether a patient needs antibiotics or not. Um, particularly the data around COVID-19 is, is really worrying in, in terms of the likely unnecessary prescription of antibiotics. So we're going to move on to the, the biomarker, perhaps more technical end of the session. Um, and moving over to Evdoxia Kiriazopoulou, who is coming to us from Athens today. Um, she has a huge amount of experience around biomarkers and use of biomarkers in sepsis. And so she is going to give us, um, hopefully, uh, the beginnings of an idea of how we might use biomarkers to improve our antimicrobial stewardship. So over to you now, Evdoxia. Hello, uh, thank you for the kind introduction. My name is Evdoxia Kiriazopoulou. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Athens with special interest in sepsis and COVID-19. And I'm very happy to talk about the potential of biomarkers uh, in guiding antimicrobial treatment. Uh, so to begin with, uh, we have to define what a biomarker is. Uh, a biomarker is a measurable indicator of a biological status in normal and abnormal conditions. In sepsis, over 200 biomarkers have been investigated from different categories in order to uh, set the diagnosis of sepsis early, uh, detect the patient with organ dysfunction, but also um, uh, prognose the patient's outcome and um, guide the patient management, including antimicrobial treatment and antimicrobial stewardship. That is what we will focus on for the next few minutes. Uh, the, uh, the, the recently published Surviving Sepsis Campaign guidelines suggest over a short duration of antimicrobial treatment. But what is short duration of antimicrobial treatment? There are a number of trials, randomized clinical trials, uh, particularly for uh, uh, community-acquired pneumonia or ventilator-associated pneumonia, comparing a short antimicrobial treatment of 5 to 7 days to a longer one of 10 to 14 days and conclude that these um, durations of antimicrobial treatment are similar, the uh, short uh, treatment is non-inferior to the longer treatment, so the suggestion is uh, a course of antimicrobial treatment of uh, about uh, five to seven days. In case of uncertainty, when we don't have the pathogen detected, uh, the, the same guidelines suggest that we use biomarkers to discontinue antimicrobials, but not to start antimicrobials. There we are alone with our clinical judgment. Which biomarkers? Mainly procalcitonin, PCT. And why that? Because um, most of the trials, most of the evidence that we have is about uh, procalcitonin because uh, uh, all um, Almost all trials, uh, randomized clinical trials, are about uh, PCT uh, guidance in sepsis treatment. 
The first large trial in sepsis about PCT was uh, conducted in France, that is the Borata trial, in which patients with sepsis in ICU uh, were randomized either to receive standard of care or PCT-guided treatment. In the PCT group, there was an algorithm of start and stop antimicrobials according to PCT levels. And in particular, um, uh, physicians were advised uh, to start on the microbials by a PCT level uh, above 0.5. And um, uh, respectively, um, discontinued the microbials when uh, PCT levels were fallen uh, below 0.5, or there was a decrease, in, uh, a relative decrease of 80% of the initial value. The aim of the trial was to show that with PCT guidance, uh, antimicrobial duration will be reduced in sepsis uh, patients treated in this group. And that was the case, indeed. Uh, there was a statistically significant reduction in the length of antimicrobial treatment in the PCT group, which is shown in red. Uh, but the benefit was mainly not at the start of antimicrobials uh, um, in, during the, the, the course of uh, antimicrobial treatment. Uh, there was uh, no um, uh, sign of relapse or infection, but there was a, a, a signal, although it was not statistically significant, for higher 60-day mortality. That was the reason that the Dutch investigators with the SUBS trial tried to conduct um, a trial about safety and efficacy of PCT guidance in sepsis patients. This is the largest trial so far, uh, randomizing more than uh, 1,500 patients, and here, only a stop rule of antimicrobials was uh, introduced and used for the trial. Uh, again, here, the antimicrobial duration was reduced when PCT guidance was uh, used for the stop of antimicrobials. And there was also a strange finding of um, a, a survival benefit um, in uh, short outcomes and also in long out outcomes after one year. Uh, this was the first uh, time, uh, for the first time shown in clinical trials about PCT guidance. And after that, many meta-analyses were published, um, focusing on the, uh, not only on the uh, reduction of the antimicrobial duration for, for, for sepsis patients, but also for these uh, survival benefit seen after 28 days. Uh, I chose this meta-analysis because uh, here there is also the subgroup of patients uh, fulfilling the sepsis 3 criteria as Many of the trials were before uh, 2016, and um, we understand that the, uh, the the population that was studied uh, was not uh, fulfilling the sepsis-3 criteria. So this is applicable also for sepsis-3 patients. Uh, another problem uh, that brings in heterogeneity in sepsis trials with PCT is the algorithm that is used. Uh, some trials have uh, some old ones, older one trials uh, have used uh, uh, a rule to start or stop antimicrobials or a mixed rule, and there were different cutoffs, uh, either absolute or relative values. From meta-analysis, uh, it is shown that only the discontinuation algorithm is uh, favors patient survival, and that is what is uh, currently recommended in the uh, surviving sepsis campaign guidelines. So why uh, such a strategy, an early discontinuation of antimicrobials, may help patients uh, do better, get better, uh, survive more? Um, the hypothesis is that perhaps during the shorter antimicrobial exposure, uh, patients uh, suffer from less adverse events from antimicrobials, uh, uh, allergic reactions or other drug reactions, and perhaps lower uh, rate of infections by wound drug resistant organisms. This is only a hypothesis which was first, first uh, tested in the Greek trial, the PROGRESS one. 
which was uh, a, a sepsis, uh, a randomized sepsis population um, with um, uh, uh, sepsis 3 criteria fulfilled now because the trial was uh, conducted after the implementation of sepsis 3 definitions. And the patients were enrolled and randomized either to receive standard of care or PCT-guided treatment. Here, the same stop algorithm as in the sub-trial was uh, used. And patients were all followed up for a long period of six months. Uh, there was also a four-point um, uh, stool sampling for a gut colonization by multidrug-resistant organisms. Uh, here again, the antimicrobial duration was reduced for uh, all types of infections, uh, as seen in previous trials, uh, but also the, the rate of adverse events was uh, lower in patients treated with PCT guidance, in particular, associated antibiotic-associated diarrhea and acute kidney injury. Again, the 28-day uh, survival was reduced in patients in the PCT arm. But the primary endpoint of the trial was a bit different from other trials. It was a composite endpoint of uh, uh, any new infection by Clostridium difficile or multidrug-resistant organisms in a, in a time frame of six months. And these clinical infections from uh, CDI and uh, multidrug-resistant organisms were reduced from 15% to 7% in the PCT uh, group. The trial had a four-point, uh, four-time point um, uh, stool sampling for gut colonization, but the rate of gut colonization was similar among the two arms. Uh, what was uh, what was different is the the rate of uh, the, the the risk of patients uh, in the standard of care treatment to develop a clinical infection when colonized by multidrug resistant organisms. This risk was higher in the standard of care treatment um, uh, compared to PCT-guided treatment. And there was also a higher level of gut inflammation as reflected by calprotectin uh, stool levels uh, at the uh, seven days of treatment. After the Greek results, the Dutch investigators um, um, took a look uh, at uh, the cultures of these patients uh, randomized in the sub-trial, and although it was, uh, it was not a predefined um, planned analysis, uh, they performed a secondary subgroup analysis of uh, patients uh, with um, available cultures to see if the colonization rate was higher in those treated in the standard of care treatment. This is only a part of patients, a subgroup analysis of 900 patients out of the 1,500. And that's why, uh, although the antimicrobial duration was significantly, statistically significant reduced, uh, it was only for one day. Uh, the rate of gut colonization uh, or colonization in general by multidrug-resistant organisms in this population was similar uh, between patients in the PCT and SOC group. But we have to underline here that um, the duration of treatment was only one day different, and there was also a lower, uh, lower rate of uh, colonization in general by multidrug-resistant organisms in the Netherlands compared with Greece and other countries. What has changed in the COVID-19 era? Uh, we have mainly observational trials about PCT, not randomized ones, and all of them conclude that uh, perhaps procalcitonin uh, may help um, uh, detect patients with bacterial co-infection and also uh, is uh, well associated with uh, unfavorable outcomes such as um, ICU admission, mechanical ventilation and death. 
there are trials like this one from the UK where PCT was used um, as an antimicrobial stewardship uh, tool uh, to um, withhold antibiotics in patients with COVID-19, and that was um, that uh, concluded uh, ended with um, uh, lower uh, antimicrobial prescription. The only randomized clinical trial for COVID-19 patients uh, was conducted in France and is recent, has been recently published. Um, the trial uh, randomized patients with COVID-19 admitted at the ICU uh, to PCT-guided treatment together with multiplex PCR of respiratory secretions uh, compared to standard of care. The trial was negative. There was no uh, difference in uh, antimicrobial duration, length of antimicrobial treatment between the two groups. And that is perhaps due to the fact that uh, with combined multi multiplex PCR, more patients were detected with bacterial co-infection than with conventional microbiology. And the second uh, uh, disadvantage, uh, if we are uh, allowed to, do, to, to say so, is that the trial used also not a stopping algorithm, but also a starting algorithm. Uh, 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 what about other biomarkers to guide antimicrobial treatment? The evidence is uh, sparse. We don't have um, uh, so many trials as in PCT, but there are two trials about CRP guidance. Uh, the one, the first one is an older one where CRP guidance was compared to PCT guidance and the, the two strategies were found to be similar. Uh, here, the algorithm used for CRP was uh, for a stop of antimicrobials was a decrease of CRP of 50%. And there is also a newer trial about CRP guidance, which compares uh, CRP guidance with uh, fixed uh, 7 and 14 day durations in gram negative bacteremia. Uh, all three strategies are similar in, uh, in terms of uh, um, um, uh, clinical failure. Uh, but with CRP-guided treatment, uh, the, mid the mean and median, du median duration of antimicrobial treatment was seven days. That was exactly the same as the fixed uh, seven-day treatment. There is also a small trial about perception, which is a novel biomarker uh, with uh, future in sepsis trials. Uh, the trial is not randomized, and, it, it, and the trial was uh, unfortunately negative. Uh, could not uh, perception uh, with a cutoff of 350 could not uh, reduce more the antimicrobial duration as uh, did the standard of care. And to sum up, I would like to conclude with this algorithm published uh, recently in Intensive Care Medicine about how we are meant to um, uh, manage patients with sepsis. When we suspect that someone has sepsis, we have to uh, act early, uh, measure the SOFA score, and uh, take back blood cultures and start antimicrobials uh, as soon as possible. Within one hour if the patient is shocked, within three hours if the patient has sepsis. Uh, but we have also to uh, measure a baseline CRP and PCT. Daily, we reassess our patients and see if they are febrile, if they don't need any more vasopressors, if the uh, SOFA score is reduced, and when all these are fulfilled, then we can stop antimicrobials uh, after seven days of treatment, regardless of biomarkers, or even um, sooner, after five days of treatment, if the biomarker uh, cutoffs are achieved. And these cutoffs are 80 to 90% reduction for, CRP, for, for PCT and 50% reduction for CRP. Uh, in other cases, when these uh, bio when the biomarkers are uh, not decreased and the patient is deteriorating, we have to uh, check again our diagnosis. Perhaps it's not infection; it's something else. Uh, 
perhaps we don't give the uh, appropriate antimicrobial treatment or we don't give it with uh, the appropriate route of administration. And in cases of stable patients, we can just withhold antibiotics and follow up the patient. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Edoxia. That, that was a wonderful presentation and, and really comprehensive. Um, there was a question about CRP in the chat, but I think you've more than more than answered that with your presentation. I'm just going to give you one question, uh, if that's okay. And, and that would be, um, I work in a resource limited setting where these biomarkers are very expensive. Are there any situations you know where biomarkers are not particularly helpful? Uh, is, is, are there a category of illnesses where perhaps these are not going to help you? Or, or conversely, those where the situations, there's a lot of evidence that they're going to be really valuable. I would like to start um, with something else. The guidelines are very specific, and we can uh, we, we should use a seven fixed a seven day fixed treatment uh, that is uh, non inferior to longer uh, treatment. Perhaps the biomarkers help our um, stress, uh, our anxiety about if the, if the patient is doing well or not. Uh, so in sepsis, there are there is huge evidence about uh, using the biomarkers, but for infections that require longer uh, periods such as uh, uh, urinary tract infections in men or endocarditis, osteomyelitis, then biomarkers do not uh, play a role in the um, uh, in the treatment duration. Uh, for limited settings, um, uh, I understand that perhaps a measurement of PCT uh, may not be um, affordable. Um, in, in such cases, CRP is a better biomarker because it's the cheaper one. Uh, of course, we, ha we have to, to act with what we have uh, available. Um, thank you so much. That's really helpful. So thank you for uh, an excellent talk, really comprehensive and clear, and, and also your contribution generally to advancing this field, I think, has been invaluable. So thank you so much, Evdoxia. So we, we just talked about biomarkers for deciding about antibiotic use. We're going to stick with biomarkers now and, and look at risk, risk stratification. Our next speaker is Peter Pickers. Uh, many of you will know Peter. He is an uh, intensivist and, and professor of ICU medicine at uh, the University Medical Center of Radboud in the Netherlands. And he is going to um, talk now around risk stratification. So over to you, Peter. Thank you very much, uh, ladies and gentlemen all over the world. Thank you for the kind introduction. Uh, indeed, I'm an internist intensivist in the Netherlands uh, with a specific uh, interest in sepsis and also in phenotyping and endotyping of sepsis patients. So what I will talk about in the next 15 minutes is the role of biomarkers for risk stratification. Uh, and the very first reason that we want to use this is that we want to personalize the treatment in sepsis patients. So we all recognize that sepsis patients are very different. And there is a subgroup of patients that may have a low risk and we can just give them standard of care. But there's also subgroups with high risk. Uh, and some of these patients, some mechanism A is active and then we should target that. And another group of patients, another mechanism is active and then we should uh, uh, focus treatment on that. So what is really relevant in using these enrichment 
strategies is that there are different forms of enrichment. The first one is prognostic enrichment. And this is what we used over the last decades of trials. And it means that there is a focus on a clinical outcome. So many times, day 28 mortality was the clinical outcome with the idea that enough people should actually met this outcome to have a chance that the therapeutic intervention indeed shows a benefit on this outcome. However, this is the old school trials that we did. And as you know, all these trials fail to show a benefit of therapeutic efficacy in sepsis patients. The other way to enrich is predictive enrichment. And this means that the focus is on the process that is actually happening, the biological process. So for example, if you are looking to modulate the immune response in sepsis patients, you can use predictive enrichment. And then later on, as a secondary step, you can still use prognostic enrichments to select the patients that are likely to have an event. But the predictive enrichment means that you will select patients that are, for example, hyperinflamed, and so you can treat them with immune suppression compared to patients that might be immune suppressed, and then the treatment would be the opposite with immune stimulating drugs. And so I think this is a much better way to actually have a higher chance to find something beneficial. Now, if you look at biomarkers, I think we all recognize that sepsis and especially septic shock is a near-death clinical condition. So that means that the whole body, everything is dysregulated. And as a consequence, all biomarkers that you measure will have some prognostic value. The more severe the disease is, the higher disease severity the patient has, the more dysregulation. So it's clearly that there is some prognostic value. Some of these biomarkers may have predictive value, but that is all depending on whether or not they illustrate a relevant process that is going on in that patient. So we look for prognostic uh, validity of biomarkers just recently. The paper is just submitted. Uh, and what we found in bacterial as well as in uh, viral sepsis, that there are many, many biomarkers and that most of the area under the curves are between 0.7 and 0.8. So there is some predictive value. Uh, this predictive value is not really dependent on the baseline mortality rate. Uh, but that doesn't mean that this biomarker that predicts death does actually also predict or is related to a biological process. So in my view, how can we use biomarkers is really getting interesting if the biomarker is not only prognostic on outcome, but also has predictive value on the biological process. And I will give you three examples that are now available from more clinical application with dexamethasone and tocilizumab, for example, in COVID-19, to more experimental application with a new vasopressor uh, and bio-ADM-related treatment. So let's start with dexamethasone and tocilizumab. So this is the trial that changed everything during the pandemic. A huge trial. It was shown that patients on any form of oxygen supplementation benefited from 10 days of dexamethasone. It's a one-size-fits-all treatment. All the patients are treated the same way. Now, let's say that you have a young, obese COVID-19 patient. He's admitted to the ward. He's on oxygen, 
So also dexamethasone is started. He's not clearly hyperinflamed or does not have any other organ failures. He's just needing uh, the respiratory uh, support. On day two, he needs to be transferred to the ICU for invasive me mechanical ventilation. And of course, dexamethasone is continued. Then a couple of days later, aspergillus is actually cultured from his uh, bronchial aspirate. He's now five days in the ICU. Should we continue the dexamethasone for another four days? Because it was 10 days of treatment in the trial that showed the benefit. But this patient actually might be harmed with the treatment more than the benefit. And I will explain that. So following these large trials, there are now follow-up studies that show indeed if you look in a group of patients uh, and you look at the effects of steroid treatment, well, in this smaller group, there is a 20% reduction in hazard ratio. It does not reach significance because of statistical power. That's fine. But if you look in the subgroup that is hyperinflamed, and so cytokines were measured, for example, in these patients, the therapeutic efficacy is much more pronounced. So these are the ones that are actually benefiting most from dexamethasone. So it's not one size does fit all. The same is true for tocilizumab, for example, as anti-IL-6 treatment. Again, we know from studies that in critically ill patients, overall, there is a small but significant benefit in these patients. And again, a follow-up uh, uh, study. 146 patients, a small study, it this Dutch did show that IL-6 concentrations indeed predict the need for mechanical ventilation, but also the therapeutic efficacy of tocilizumab. So if you have a low level of IL-6 and you're not treated with tocilizumab, you have the best outcome. If you have a high level of IL-6 at baseline and you're not treated, your outcome is most impaired. If you treat these patients with a high level of IL-6, the outcome improves almost to the level of patients with a low IL-6 level at baseline. However, if you have a low IL-6 level and you do treat these patients with an antagonist for IL-6, there is actually a worse outcome. And these effects are significant. There is a four times improvement, but there's also more than four times uh, a signal of harm if the wrong patients are treated. And so it makes sense. We are actually inhibiting IL-6, so we should know if IL-6 is really elevated in these patients. So my view is that a more, more personalized approach is definitely warranted also in these patients. The second item I want to address is renin and angiotensin II. So I think most of the people know this study published in New England Journal. Uh, showing that this new or alternative vasopressor is able to increase blood pressure in patients that were already on norepinephrine. What is interesting is indeed that normally angiotensin II is produced in the body via a cascade ending with angiotensin-converting enzyme. Well, in severe shock, and especially in septic shock with endothelial injury, this enzyme is not working properly. And so, as a consequence, you will have less angiotensin II production from your own body, and by negative feedback mechanisms, renin levels will increase. So we could use renin as maybe as a biomarker to see in which patients there might be more benefit. So what was done indeed as a post hoc study 
was they took the samples from this trial and they looked at the relationship between renin levels and angiotensin II infusion rate clinical effects. So if you look at the subgroup of patients with renin concentration below the median value, so in these patients, renin is not activating, meaning that endogenous production of angiotensin II apparently is still sufficient, there is no benefit in survival. If you look in the subgroup that had a renin concentration above the median, there is a significant survival benefit in the treatment group with angiotensin II. So this is again interesting. If your ACE is not working properly and you do produce insufficient amounts of angiotensin II, your renin level will be higher. And these are the patients that seem to benefit from angiotensin II supplementation. So again, it makes sense and it is a way to enrich the patient groups that might benefit more. So again, my view is we can use a biomarker to select patients that are more likely to benefit from a treatment. Finally, I will end with bioADM and DPP3. So bioADM is the way you can measure adrenomedulin in the blood. And adrenomedulin is a protein that is released during sepsis and it is related to vascular tone uh, and also to capillary leakage. And indeed, if your bioADM level is higher, your outcome is worse, especially if the increase is persistent. So patients that have an increased level of bioADM after 24 hours still have the worst outcome compared that to patients with lower levels of bioADM. There is another biomarker called DPP3. This is a protease that is in the cell normally and not released. But however, if there is uh, organ dysfunction and injury to cells, then the DPP3 is released into the circulation. And there it can also cut, for example, small peptides like angiotensin II. And so it has a negative effect on shock and it has also cardiac depressive effects in animal models. So we looked indeed again in, in sepsis patients and we looked at quartiles of DPP3. And again, the higher the DPP3 level is, the worse the outcome of patients. But this is a different mechanism from bioADM. We also looked in COVID-19 patients. And again, if especially both bioADM and DPP3 is high, these are the patients with the most impaired outcome. So this has additional value because different processes are reflected by the different biomarkers. So the thinking is the following. We have a spectrum of patients. There is a spectrum of disease severity. If the patient is not very sick and has a low bioIDM and a low DPP3, that patient will live anyway. So leave that patient alone. If you have a patient with both a high bioADM and a high DPP3, these patients are very, very sick. They might die anyway. So the in-between patients, for example, with a high bioADM, but not an elevated DPP3, they might be safe if you have a drug related to bioADM. Or if the opposite is true, if you have a subgroup of patients with elevated DPP3, but not elevated bioADM, then a treatment related to DPP3 might be beneficial. So this is the in-between uh, group of patients that might be saved. And it is uh, interesting to exclude patients 
that might die from other reasons for high DPP-3, for example. So there was a phase two trial uh, done with uh, a bio-ADM antibody. Uh, and in this trial, patients were already selected at baseline if they had elevated bio-ADM. So there was already enrichment of this cohort. So this was the inclusion criteria. We now actually performed a secondary post hoc analysis and uh, looking also at DPP-3 levels. And if the DPP-3 was too high, we, we plan to exclude these patients from the analysis because these patients also are dying, but by a mechanism that cannot be influenced by the antibody against bioADM. And so what we found is was a trial in uh, approximately 300 patients uh, and the mortality uh, uh, outcome was not significantly different. This is not surprising. The trial was not powered to show that. There might be a very uh, some signal of an improvement in the blue treatment group. But if we excluded the patients with elevated DPP-3, and so we only had left the patients with elevated bioADM, but not elevated DPP-3, this signal of benefit becomes more prominent. So this is a subgroup of this trial. It's a small amount of patients, but the p-value is 0.08. And of course, it's post hoc, but this does illustrate that you can select patients that might benefit more. So my view is that using enrichment will increase the likelihood to find new treatments. We can focus on the biological process that we can modulate, and at the same time, we can use biomarkers also to exclude patients with a high chance of dying because of other reasons that are not uh, modulated by this specific treatment. So my conclusions are that biomarkers can be used for different things. You can use it as a diagnostic biomarker, as a prognostic biomarker, but also to use it as enrichment, as a predictive biomarker. So I think this is really useful for a personalized approach. We need that if we want to be able to show some treatment benefit in sepsis patients. And if we find biomarkers with both prognostic and predictive value, these are most interesting and relevant for therapeutic intervention trials that are related to the pathway, the process that is measured with that biomarker. And apart from bioADM, there are several other ongoing trials. For example, ESTREM is also a very interesting biomarker. It's related to mm. outcome, and a phase two trial was performed using ESTREM, uh, using an antibody to treat these patients. But we should not enroll everybody as we did in the old trials. We should look for subgroups uh, in which this specific process is dysregulated, and then we might be able to show a benefit. And with that, I thank you for your kind attention and happy to answer your questions. Thank you, Peter. That was a really, really nice talk and um, e excellent view overview of, of the field and the current trials. We are going to have to move on um, in the interest of time because we have uh, another session that's going to start shortly. Um, so I'm going to um, move straight over to our next speaker, who's going to stay on the topic of biomarkers. And this is Tom van der Poel from coming from the Netherlands, also the University of Amsterdam. So straight over to you, Tom. Thank you.
Thank you. Um, I will try to make it short. There's some overlap with previous speakers. My name is Tom van der Pol. I'm located in the Amsterdam UMC in Amsterdam. And my talk focuses on transcriptational diagnostics, which means that it primarily focuses on blood leukocyte genomics as a tool to stratify patients into subgroups um, that are more homogeneous when it comes down uh, to stratifying the sepsis population. So Peter already alluded to the fact that you can use biomarkers in several different ways. And with regards to transcript, uh, to genomic um, uh, signatures and uh, uses biomarkers, uh, you can use these um, in, to discriminate patients that are critically ill who either do or do not have an infection in the top uh, part of this slide. And you can even take it so far that you can discriminate based on host response signatures, transcriptomics, uh, between different pathogens. At least you can get hints at which pathogen might be causative in a particular patient. And finally, you could try to uh, distinguish subgroups of patients uh, based on certain signatures that signifies pathophysiological mechanisms. And I'm going to give you a few examples. Let's start with biomarkers that can discriminate between infection and non-infection, uh, which links a little bit to the procalcitonin talk that we heard previously. Now, this is the only uh, licensed molecular biomarker that's out there, FDA cleared. This is from a company named Immune Express um, that have the septicide lab test, which was uh, published first um, in this discovery cohort published a few years ago, um, where they found four genes that could discriminate between critically ill patients with or without an infection. Um, the test is based on four genes. You can see them on the right part of the slide. Uh, two of which are relatively elevated in cases, being sepsis in red, and two of which are relatively down in sepsis. And they composed the score and they validated that across different cohorts um, and showing a nice area on the curve of above 0.9 across various uh, cohorts for the discrimination between um, non-infectious critical illness and infectious critical illness. And currently, this test is now also available as Septicide Rapid, which is on a BioCartis-generated IDILA platform with a very low uh, um, low turnaround time, a small turnaround time, like two hours or so. Now, this is licensed. It's not um, extremely frequently used still in clinical practice, but it's out there, and it, um, it warrants further validation in real clinical life, I guess. So there are several other tests. So this is a test that was published a few years ago, 11 genes that could uh, fairly accurately discriminate between infectious and sterile acute disease. This was validated across 15 independent cohorts, 11 genes. And this test actually, which was named the sepsis metascore, was a, a building stone uh, for another test that was published more recently uh, based on 29 mRNAs. Um, which could actually discriminate um, different conditions. So it started with the 11 mRNA signature that I alluded to on the previous slide that could assist in the diagnosis of an acute infection versus a sterile acute uh, disease. But uh, this build-on test could now also distinguish between bacterial versus viral infection and could also provide insight into the risk of 30-day mortality from sepsis based on 12 mRNAs. And this composite score could then assist across different populations um, in not only diagnosing the, in, the 
an infection, but also say something about the type of infection and possible prognosis. Now, this test is uh, not available. It's called Triverity. It's developed by a, a relatively small biotech company named Inflamatics in California. Um, and this test has now been um, evaluated in multiple publications. You can find them uh, in PubMed or on the internet. Um, and um, it has a potential um, in across different populations, but obviously, um, as usual, more research is needed to establish its real value. Then uh, you could also use uh, mRNA signatures um, to obtain insight in the pathophysiology of uh, certain patient populations, and, and this talk is obviously about sepsis. And um, what you do then is you do whole blood transcriptomics, so you get differential expression of multiple uh, genes, let's say 20,000 or so. And then you ask the computer, can you tell me um, in this uh, heterogeneous population of sepsis, are there subtypes that are biologically more homogeneous based on their blood leukocyte um, gene expression patterns? And this is usually done by cluster analysis. And in such ways, you can identify what we call endotypes. So with more similar biological uh, phenomenon in their blood leukocytes, as compared to the uh, mother, uh, more home, heterogeneous population. I provide one example. This is a study published by Julian Knight's group, where they studied patients with um, CAP-induced sepsis. And using this cluster method, they found two subtypes, sepsis response signatures, as they call them, SRS1 and SRS2. And the SRS1, if you looked at uh, gene expression patterns in that subtype, uh, was more associated with an immune suppression um, um, the SRS1. And this SRS1 was also associated with enhanced lethality, as you can see on the left-hand side in the discovery cohort, which was confirmed in a validation cohort. What's interesting now is that um, these um, sepsis response signatures may have relevance for treatment decisions. So this is a retrospective analysis of um, the VANISH trial, um, where they tested the effect of hydrocortisone in patients with septic shock. And now having gene expression profiles of these patients, they first divided the, the, the trial population into those with an SRS1 um, sepsis response signature and an SRS2. And sure enough, you can see that in the immune competent SRS2 um, phenotype, uh, hydrocortisone was harmful. So if you would have known this a priori, you could have um, selected those patients that are, were more likely to harmed by the treatment and your treatment effect would have been better. So these uh, unbiased clustering analyses might help you in uh, patient selection for certain treatments for sepsis. Uh, these authors took it a little bit further and they uh, recently published a few months ago uh, a more a quantitative um, SRS score. They called it the SRSQ score, which goes from, one to, uh, from zero to one. Uh, zero is being very close to healthy, and one means that the immune response is most disturbed. And you can see on the right-hand side that this SRSQ score, uh, which is based on these SRS uh, endotypes I showed you previously, has a direct relationship with uh, outcome being 28-day mortality. This um, recent um, study looked also at the potential of gene expression profiles in predicting the treatment response to hydrocortisone. Um, and actually what they, they did a targeted analysis looking only at genes, uh, candidate genes that had something to do uh, with the corticoadrenal axis. 
And then they found uh, that there was no association, no evidence of an association between candidate gene expression and mortality or the time to shock a reversal. But they did find association between two genes um, with higher expression of one of those genes was associated with a faster shock re resolution by hydrocortisone. And the other was, um, on the con in the contrary, so she was slower shock re resolution. So this means that uh, diagnostics, uh, when you use transcriptomics, can help in treatment decisions um, as to which patients to treat with certain interventions. And I provided you the example of hydrocortisone. So this is my final slide. So I succeeded in staying in time. Uh, blood leukocyte transcriptome signatures can assist in the diagnosis of infection, but also in risk stratification. Um, and also what you could do uh, with transcriptomics is to stratify patients with sepsis into more homogeneous groups um, with more common uh, biological features. And find what I also showed is that these biological phenotypes um, likely respond differently to distinct therapies. And this is only at this infancy. I showed you an example of hydrocortisone, but probably this is also applicable to other types of treatments. And finally, what is important to realize, if you want to bring this to the bedside, you really have to have analytical tools with no hands-on time. And I provided you the example of the Adila platform uh, with the septicide uh, rapid test. But also, um, there needs to be more consensus about which signatures are helpful in the clinic, because across different publications, um, several different uh, signatures have been published. Um, and uh, they do not align with each other. So this um, requires more attention. Thank you very much for your attention. One minute to go. Thank you so much, Tom. That was really, really fascinating. And I think also really exciting as we can begin to see this individualized medicine, uh, particularly around sepsis, reaching the bedside potentially. Um, I can't see any questions in, in the chat at the moment. I remind people, type quickly because the speakers can't see the questions. Um, so to answer them if, if they've missed them. But I guess around the, the point you made at the end there about reaching consensus on which signatures and uh, we should be looking at, um, are there any movements to, to bring together um, researchers and interested parties to do that? And secondly, should anyone thinking of doing a treatment trial in sepsis, you know, at least contemplate um, including at least a blood sample or, or a specimen um, for for future research um, to to analyze the results? Yeah, there are attempts uh, to, to to build consensus um, about the molecular signatures. That's ongoing, and hopefully, um, um, we're also involved in that with with a couple of other research groups. So hopefully we can come to a consensus and publish that. Um, and the second question, yes, many trials nowadays, especially uh, the, the somewhat um, uh, more organized trials, so platform trials are difficult to get, obtain samples because they're all over the world in different, many, so many different centers. Uh, but many other trials have collected samples and try to make more out of this molecular diagnostics to help um, patient selection. Okay, thank you so much. Um, and I think with that, we will come to the end of our session. I would like to thank all of our speakers. Um, um, Peter's had to, to leave, but everybody else who's remaining, thank you so much. We've covered a huge amount of 
ground and and areas in this session and it was absolutely fascinating I've learned so much and I've, I've really enjoyed being the moderator for the session so thank you all of you for your excellent presentations and being here um, I'd like to thank all of the sponsors for the sepsis congress and also to remind you that if, if you did miss a bit or you want to hear any of these presentations again, they're all going to be released on YouTube and, and Apple TV um, shortly. So once again, thank you all so much. And uh, uh, I will now close the session because we're moving on to the next one. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to everybody who contributed to making the Fourth World Sepsis Congress possible. Session 10 is already in your feed, and sessions 11 and 12 will follow on June 6th. Until then, stay safe and thanks for joining.